This week I spent three days uh, in the city of Chicago celebrating the Blackhawks' win over the Bruins. No, just kidding. I have zero interest in hockey. Uh, there were millions of people there celebrating, but I had zero interest in it. How many of you guys are still recovering those 17 seconds? Okay. Uh, it was a crazy finish. That was the one and only hockey game I've watched ever uh, fully. It was exciting. Um, I was conflicted. I have zero interest in hockey, so I love Boston. I'm from Chicago. I wanted both of them to win. It was fun to just watch them uh, go at it, so it was fun. No, I wasn't there for hockey. Um, I was there to be with my family. Uh, my grandpa was in the ICU, and he was uh, very, very, very ill. And we as a family, we got together, and we had to make the difficult decision to uh, pull him off any um, life support treatment uh, so that we can see his final days uh, be peaceful and restful. And we knew very well that uh, his liver um, or his kidneys were completely failed. Uh, We knew very well that his lung was full of water and carbon dioxide and wouldn't be able to breathe on his own. He was on a BiPAP uh, breathing machine that was giving him forced air. And we knew very well doing all these things would be the... Uh, last days of his life, whether it be a couple days or a couple weeks, and we as a family got together, and we wanted to spend his last days together. And so for the last 72 hours, I was in uh, the ICU, we were in hospice care, and we got to spend our last days with my grandpa. Half the man that he's used to be, frail, can't walk on his own, couldn't eat on his own. And uh, our family was able to just be there, care for him. He needed nurses to come, wash up for him, change his diapers, because he couldn't do that on his own. And we, as a family, was able to see this man in his last days. We saw that he was absolutely helpless, absolutely dependent on everybody else to take care of his every need. On the other hand, I was able to take my son Ezra with me, full of life. He was wanting to see his great-grandpa for the last time. Completely different story. Kid is two years old, full of energy, his life ahead of him. And he just thrived under the attention of my family in Chicago, who he doesn't get to see very much. He was just completely talkative and wanted... Uh, just to be there and run around and high-five grandpa and kiss him and have fun. And he, even though he's two years old, by now, you know, you feel like after two years of life, you should be able to take care of yourself. He, too, was not able to take care of himself. Caroline couldn't go with me. She had to finish some things up at work, and so I had to go with him by myself, take care of him, uh, had to hold his hand because he couldn't take more than ten steps without falling. I needed to feed him because he couldn't feed himself. I needed to change his diaper because he couldn't do that himself. And he too, two years old, was completely helpless. He needed the help of other people around him. So I was stuck this whole weekend between two generations of people, but at the core, very, 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 very much alike, both very dependent 
on others for their care, both very helpless and both very uh, not self-sufficient. And I was quickly reminded of 1 Timothy 6, where it says, we bring nothing into this world, and we also take nothing out from this world. With food and with clothing, if we have these things, we will be content. From dust we come, from dust we return. So keep that picture in mind. My grandpa, my 86-year-old grandpa, my two-year-old son, both frail, both helpless, both not able to take care of themselves. Keep that picture in mind this morning as we preach through the Old Testament narrative of Esther and her people. And what I want you to latch on to, to hold on to, is this word contentment. Contentment. What does it mean to be content? What does it mean to be content? What does it mean to be content in the age where you can get anything you want, whenever you want? What does it mean to be content in this day and age? What if I'm discontent? What if I'm not happy with my station in life, with what I have and what God has given me? Can I truly be content here? My aim this morning is to point to the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit to open up the scriptures and help us to know what it means to be truly and absolutely content. I hope that in our time today that you will see just as I have seen that contentment is being fully happy in the all-sufficient grace of God, in what God chooses to give to you, and also what God chooses to withhold from you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our people this morning. Pray, God, that you would open up these scriptures, that these scriptures would be alive and true this morning. That they would not be more words that we hear, more words that we read. But these words would be the words of the Spirit of God cutting at our hearts, performing surgery where it's needed. That we, in every place we are discontent, we would find contentment in Christ alone in his all-sufficient grace. Help us to do that this morning as God's people, to see the scriptures speak truth to us. Spirit, do that work. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, this morning we're introduced, reintroduced to the character of Haman. We were first introduced to him in chapter 3. If you guys remember in chapter 3, Haman was this up-and-coming political figure. King Ahasuerus gave him the, the, the title, the, his right-hand man, the second in command over all his empire. And you see Haman, this character, begin to develop. You see that he has an insatiable desire and hunger for power, for respect. And you see that he demands it above all else from every corner of this empire. And he wants everyone to bow down to him as he passes. But then even in chapter 3, we already see Haman 
the Agagite, and Mordecai, the Benjaminite, already finding a battle. They are waging this war. Haman wants all to bow down before him because he craves power. He craves respect. He wants everyone to bow down in worship of him. But there's one man, Mordecai the Benjaminite, that will not bow down before him. Every day when Haman passes the king's gates and sees Mordecai, he is the one and only man that will not bow before Haman. So every time Haman entered the king's gates, every time he went to go next to the man that gave him the power, he was reminded that his power was not absolute, that his respect was not absolute. Mordecai would not bow down like all the other Persians would. And any man that, you know, was secure in himself would have, would have seen this one man, this lowly Mordecai, and would have brushed it off and went past and thought, not, thought nothing of it. But Haman was a whole different character. He could not let this offense go by. So Haman was, was wanting to convince King Ahasuerus that Mordecai needed to be executed. That this offense needed to be dealt with. That when one person, even one person as low as Mordecai, would not bow down to Haman, this great and powerful man in the kingdom, that they needed to be dealt with. That they needed to pay for that. So Haman convinced King Ahasuerus to execute not only Mordecai, but he convinced King Ahasuerus to wipe out the whole Jewish nation in the empire of Persia. Haman abused his power to wipe out and put out a death decree for all the Jewish people in the empire of Persia to be wiped out. And so this evil decree went out through all the nation in every tongue. And you can clearly see Haman's thirst and lust for power and respect in that evil decree. So again, this morning, we're introduced to this one-dimensional character. He has an insatiable appetite for power, for respect, for prestige, and it's only growing in this chapter, in chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, King e- Queen Esther invites King Ahasuerus and Haman to a feast. So Haman, the second in command, gets to dine with the king and the ki- queen. Persian royalty, by himself. Not just once, but he gets invited a second time. Twice, on multiple occasions, to dine with Persian royalty. So obviously, his ego is stoked. His ego is taken to the next level. He feels great about himself. And after dinner, a great dinner, he gets invited back the next day, so he's really, really excited. He walks out of the king's gates, and who does he see? He sees Mordecai. Scripture says that he was full of joy and gladness. But the minute he sees Mordecai, The scripture says that he was filled with wrath, a 
against Mordecai. Haman had everything going for him at this point. He was second in command of one of the largest empires of that day. He had the ear of the king, right? He had the ear of the king. He gave, he wanted the the Jews to be wiped out and King Ahasuerus signed off on it. He was the king's right-hand man. He was invited into a private dinner with him and his wife on multiple occasions. But instead of being content with his status, content with his power, content with the place where God had him, Haman could only think one thing. He was thinking, and doesn't this guy know who I am? Doesn't this guy know where I'm coming from? I just came from the dinner table of the king and queen. I just had dinner with them. We just had ribs together. Don't you know where I came, come from? Don't you know where I'm going? Don't you know who I'm with, who I'm tight with? Why would you not bow? And so instead of being content with where God had placed him, Haman was left discontent because he wanted to be somewhere else. He had his own plan. He wanted to be. He wanted to be somewhere else. Which brings us to our first point. What happens if we're discontent? What happens? What if we're discontent? What do we do? How do we react? What should we do? Well, Let's define what discontentment is. Discontentment is idolatry. Discontentment is idolatry. All right, this was the hardest thing for me to swallow when I was prepping this because confession, I am very, very, I struggle very, very, very much with discontentment. This is particularly heavy with me because I am very success and uh, approval hungry. And so I if in my ideal world, in my sinful, delusional, ideal world, I would be the most successful, the most approved of person, human being in this world. But I know in reality that's not true. I know in reality that there are people that are bigger, faster, stronger, better at things than I am. And so this is a, a particularly a heavy thing for me when we talk about discontentment as idolatry. I had to learn quick that I will not receive ultimate approval. I will not be ultimately successful, more successful than everybody else because this world does not exist to applaud me. This world does not exist to see my success happen. And sadly, there are days when I hear about somebody's uh, success or somebody's advancement, um, and I just can't stop thinking about it. It ruins my day because I think about how they're advancing and I'm not, how they're succeeding and I'm not. I don't know if you guys are with me there, if you guys have have that thought. I know I'm sinful, probably way more sinful and more stupid sinful than, than all of you, but that's me. I have that problem discontentment. And I never thought that I would fight, I should fight this sin like all my other sins because I always attributed it to my wiring. I always attributed it to how my personality was because I craved success. I craved approval. 
just in my personality, in my wiring. But as I was studying to, to preach this to message, I began to realize that this contentment is not just a season of life. It's not something that just happens to the best of them. It's not something that we all should just live with on this side of heaven. But scripture makes it clear, discontentment is sin. Discontentment is idolatry, specifically. If you don't know what, uh, what your idols are, just think about the most extreme emotions that you've had in the past couple of weeks, past couple of months, past couple of years. You will see your idols show up when you experience great highs or great lows. When extreme emotions come out, you will see your idols come out clearly. For Haman, his idols were crystal clear, right? He had just come out of the highest moment of his career. He had just sat down with the king and the queen sitting in a private dinner, eating ribs, licking his fingers, coming out. He was on cloud nine, invited back for round two. He was on his Mount Everest. And he comes out, the scriptures say he was joyful and full of gladness. On his way, he sees Mordecai outside the king's gates. And what happens? It says he was then filled with wrath against Mordecai. See how quickly his idol surfaced? Mordecai would not bow down before Haman. And quickly, wrath filled his heart. He went from one high to the next low. And we immediately see that his heart's idols were power, prestige, and respect. These things were challenged when Mordecai would not bow before him, would not recognize him. In his universe, in Haman's universe, everyone would pay homage to Haman. Everyone would bow down before him. Everyone would say how great he is, how powerful he is, how amazing he is. Essentially, Haman wanted to be God. And that's exactly what idolatry does. That's exactly what idolatry does. Idolatry takes God out of the center. He no longer defines what you do by his will and by his character. And in place of God, something else, mainly you, you now define what God does. Your character, your will define what God does what everybody else does. Idolatry turns the tables and makes you the center and no longer God. Idolatry idolatry pushes God to the periphery, almost makes him non-existent. God cannot, can no longer say anything about your life. He can no longer speak into your life. You have replaced him with an idol, something that is inanimate, so you get to order it. And in place of God, there is something else. Instead of finding your great joy and your great happiness in God at the center, you've replaced it with an idol. And that idol is your source of joy and happiness. As the idol goes, you go. So now carrying a bruised ego, Haman leaves. He 
He restrains himself from doing anything at that point. He leaves. He goes home. He's got a bruised ego. So what does he do? He invites all his buddies. He invites all his buddies and his wife all together for a powwow. And at this point, he wants just to vent about his day. He just wants to talk about everything that happened that day. And here at this point, you're just praying and hoping. You're praying and hoping that he's got some, some loving brothers that will just set him straight. You're praying and hoping that these brothers would be able to speak truth into his life, even though it's hard to hear. Or you're just hoping that he's married a, a God-fearing wife that will be able to, to lovingly correct him, gently correct him. I mean, he's got to have somebody that will tell him the truth, right? But then you also think, there's a reason why Haman is the way that he is right now. He probably doesn't have some of those loving brothers, a a God-fearing wife to correct and rebuke him. So the crew that's gathered, instead of telling him that, hey, bro, God God has given you so much. Look around. God's given you wealth. He's given you power. He's given you uh, sons. None of this is deserved, Haman. You don't deserve an ounce of it, but by God's grace, he's given it to you. Accept it. Take it. Praise God for it. And even if somebody doesn't recognize this, they're not able to see God's grace in your life, so pray for the brother. Don't take revenge on him. Instead of saying that, they tell him, all right, bro, if it bothers you so much, let's take care of it. All right, if it bothers you so much, let's get rid of whatever is impeding your joy and your happiness. Right? They don't confront him and call him to repentance. They just confirm and approve of his sin. Now, What happens after this is one of the most ironic scenes in all of the scriptures, and I hope you guys don't miss it as you guys read through the book of Esther. His crew tells him, says, if you want to get rid of Mordecai, this guy that seems to to sap all the joy in your life, let's go ahead and build the gallows. Let's not just build any gallows. Let's build a gallows that's 75 feet high. That's, I, I don't know, is this 70, I don't know if this is 75 feet high. But let's build a gallows that's really, really, really high. Just ridiculously high. Why would they do that? Well, Haman's ego was really, really bruised. And so they want to, they want to show that Mordecai really, really, really needs to pay by hanging from a really, really, really high gallows. They are stroking his ego really bad right now. And on this massively tall gallows, they were planning to hang Mordecai the next day before the entire Persian Empire so that everybody could see that if you cross Haman, this is what happens to you. And so they quickly built this gallows overnight because they knew that Haman was going to see and sit in front of the queen and the king and would have their ear so they can have Mordecai executed. So his friends quickly worked throughout the night to build this ridiculously high um, gallows, and they finish it. But as the providence of God would have it, Haman did not know 
that Esther too was plotting to have Haman's neck. That Esther too was plotting all along as he, she requested from the king multiple feasts over multiple days that she was trying to have Haman killed. And so, the next day, Esther was going to ask King Ahasuerus to have Haman's neck. Haman was going to ask King Ahasuerus to have Mordecai's neck. And so there was a question, a a tense conflict, a cliffhanger in the scriptures as we go into chapter 6. And in God's providence, overnight, some beautiful, beautiful things happen where the king has just a bad night's sleep. And he orders a book to come, and he sees that Mordecai had saved him, had done great things for him one, a long time ago, and he desires to honor him. And thing, one thing after another occurs, and before you know it, instead of Mordecai's neck on that gallows, it is Haman's neck. In all their foolishness, and all his friends' and wives' foolishness, they did succeed. They did succeed to lift Haman high, and to have him above all other people in his kingdom, 75 feet in fact, so that everybody could see him. They did succeed in having all the attention revert back to Haman. 75 feet in the air, you couldn't miss him. You saw him hanging, all the attention back on Haman, just as he wanted. They succeeded. But with an irrational effort to get rid of Haman's threat, his band of fools built the very device that was Haman's demise. The lesson here is worshiping idols is irrationally suicidal. Sin, worshiping idols, discontentment is irrationally suicidal. Why? Because discontentment is sin. Specifically, the sin of idolatry. Discontentment means you are fully satisfied, you are not fully satisfied with how God has provided things in your life. And you would rather secure your own joy, rather secure your own happiness for yourself than wait for what God has provided. The thing about idolatry is, though it gives you a taste of satisfaction, it will never quench your thirst. You guys ever been to an all-you-can-eat buffet? Buffets are a great idea until like halfway through the meal. You are just wanting to stop eating, but you paid so much money to, to eat this all-you-can-eat buffet, and you just got to keep eating and gorging this meal. I went to uh, Fogo de Chao with some people in my company a couple, uh, couple weeks ago. Um, it's a new... Brazilian barbecue place in Copley. So if you haven't been there, Brazilian barbecue is just endless cycles of meat. Uh, they, they cut it off for you, and they got this green and red thing going on. So if you go green, it means they keep coming. Red, they stop. And so when you're at this all-you-can-eat meat buffet, especially as a dude, you're thinking, all right, I'm going to do this. We're going to do some damage here. We're going we're gonna to get things done. And so you sit at the table, and you go green right away. And so the, the people come, and they slice off, you, slice off some ribeye for you, and then you take that ribeye, medium rare, 
right? Hopefully none of you guys eat it well done. Medium rare, put it in your mouth, and it just melts. And you're like, all right, this is what you paid for. This is why you've come. And so you're excited, and you keep it on green, you, you keep, you're, you're all in, and you're ready to, to tackle this thing, and I don't know if you've been to Fogo de Chao, but they come heavy and strong. That flow is hard, right? They just come and come and come. And before you know it, you forgot that you're on green and you got a plate stacked like four deep with meat. And you're like still finishing like the steak from 20 minutes ago. And you're just sweating and you're like, oh, what did I do to myself? Right? And then you flip that thing to red because you realize, shoot, I can't do this. And all you can eat meat buffet sounds like a great idea. And you feel like all you can eat meat, sure, it's going to satisfy you. It's going to quench your desire for meat forever. All you can eat, think about it, Brazilian barbecue, this thing is awesome. But halfway through that meal, you do not want to eat one more piece of red meat. And after that meal, you definitely don't want to. You get defeated, right? The buffet has held you over the pit of death and then brings you back and says, I've spared you. And you're sitting there, right? You're just like, finally. It's over. And you pay the bill. Idolatry gives you the taste of satisfaction, but never fully quenches it, like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It brings you to the point of death. You are disgusted at what you've done. You've met your buffet demise. In a similar way, idolatry, when you go after foolish things such as other gods, you are committing irrational suicide. When you chase after something that is not God and you believe that this thing can bring you salvation and happiness and joy, you will be severely disappointed. And not only that, the scripture says you will lose your life. Matt read this this morning to, to begin our service together. Psalm 52. Psalm 52, 7 reads, it says, see the man. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted instead in his own abundance, his riches, and sought refuge in his destruction. Discontentment is wrapping your joy in something other than God, and the witness of Scripture tells you that discontentment will lead you to your destruction. All right, then what is contentment? What is contentment and, and how am I supposed to be content? In the same way in that psalm, Psalm 52, if you keep reading, it says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good. In the presence of the godly. Contentment is being happy. Being satisfied in the all-sufficient grace of God. And what God has chosen to give to you and also withhold from you. Contentment is a dependent disposition. Contentment is a dependent disposition. The content soul in 52, uh, Psalm 52 is described as being a green olive tree, right? The green olive tree is in the house of God. The green olive tree did not decide to go into the house of God. 
because it was planted there. The green olive tree can't get up and walk outside of the house of God because it is planted there. The green olive tree is happy because it knows where it needs to be in the house of God because its planter has planted it there. The green olive tree is happy because it knows who has put it there. I will thank you forever and ever and ever because you have done it. Contentment doesn't require for you to go out and find it. Contentment doesn't mean you go out and search and make it for yourself. Contentment is a dependent disposition. It's been given to you. Receive it with a dependent disposition. Contentment is also not simply an acceptance of your current station in life, right? Your, I'm happy with, you know, what's given to me kind of attitude. It's also, if not more, a belief that you don't need what you don't already have. I'm happy with what I don't have. Contentment is not just I'm happy with what I have. If not more, it is I'm happy with what I don't have. Contentment believes the grass is just fine on this side of of the fence. I'm happy that I don't have to mow that side of the fence as well. Contentment loves what it has. It loves what what it's been given, and it realizes what it needs. Contentment doesn't look over its shoulder. Contentment does not have envy, does not compare, does not compete. Contentment is an all-satisfying view of what Jesus has done in his absolute sufficiency to provide for you everything you need when you need it. The scripture says that. 2 Corinthians 9.8. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency or being content in all things at all times, that you may abound in every good work. The power of contentment comes from God who is able, right? He is able to give you all of his abounding, all-sufficient grace so that you are sufficient, so that you are completely content and satisfied. When? In all things, at all times. Why? So that you can excel, abound in every single good work of yours. Contentment is being happy in the all-sufficient grace of God towards you and what God has chosen to give you and also what God has chosen to withhold from you. So how do we fight to remain there? How do we fight to remain content? Because we know our hearts are prone to be discontent. Well, you got to let Scripture be your level. you got to let Scripture be your plumb line. Haman didn't consult sober judgment. Haman knew exactly who he was gathering before him. Haman wanted to gather those people that would tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. He recounted all his achievements 
so that his friends, his wife, can repeat just all those things back to him and make him feel good about himself. Their skewed counsel caused his death the next day. But Scripture should be your level. It should be your sober judgment. And we should accept all that it has to say about us, even when it conflicts with every single one of your idols. And it will. Scripture will conflict with every single one of your idols. If you read Scripture and you don't get pricked, if you don't get conflicted, you're probably not reading it right. Scripture will confront you. Scripture will cause you to fight your idols. We need to maintain that line, that level line of judgment. Our hearts are prone to wander. We know it. And the scriptures need to be that plumb line to level us off, to give us sober judgment. Our hearts are prone to worship idols. And the scriptures will bring us back to have God at the center to be our joy and to be our happiness. Second, believe in the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God. God is is sovereign over all things at all times. That's how you fight to remain content. Believe in the omnipresence and the omnipotence, the all power and the all being of God. He is sovereign over all things at all times. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians. He says, your contentment or your sufficiency is powered by God's self-sufficiency. He is sufficient in himself. He is not lacking in himself. Therefore, you should not be lacking. Since he is able to provide for you in himself all that you need, he is able to do it and willing to do it, all that you need, you should be content, completely satisfied. He is able to give you grace upon grace in abundance, So you can be satisfied and able to do every good work. Spending the last few days with my grandpa um, was just eye-opening for me. It was eye-opening for me because it put things into perspective and showed how discontent, how truly discontent my heart really was. You had my 86-year-old grandpa on one side laying in a bed. And my two-year-old son running around. And there I was, right in the middle, 30-year-old, completely self-sufficient. I can do whatever I wanted to, go wherever I wanted to, eat whatever I wanted to. I could make my own decisions and just get things done for myself. I did not need anybody. And in those hours, my 86-year-old grandpa, all he could do was smile when he looked upon my grandma's face. He... All he could do was be thankful that his family was there supporting him, smiling, knowing that these were his last days and he was completely content with where he was. My son, no worries in his world. He's got his life ahead of him, nothing to worry about. He's got his Cheerios, he's got his kicks on, he's got his shirt on, he's, he's got, you know, books to read. He's got everything he needs. He's happy, he's content. And there I am, absolutely sufficient in myself, don't need anybody, and I'm complaining. 
I'm complaining that the nurses aren't coming fast enough. I'm complaining that, you know, the traffic is horrible. I'm complaining that the food is terrible. I'm just complaining. I'm discontent with where things are. It was obvious where my heart's idols were. It's obvious where my heart's idols were. They were being challenged. Our discontentment is a glimpse of the natural condition of our hearts to worship idols outside of worshiping God. For our natural state is not to worship and find satisfaction in Christ alone. It's not. We stray from that. We bend from that very, very, very easily. There are so many other things that vie for our attention and vie for our desires, and we latch on to those things because they promise immediate gratification, satisfaction. Those things don't quench your thirst. Only when your hope and your joy is found in Jesus alone will you be fully satisfied. Will you thirst no more? Jesus never fades. He never flops. He never sways on his decision. His yes is forever, set in stone, forever. His promises are forever. When he approves of you, that is forever. You will not lose that. You will not lose his approval. Seven Mile Road, I hope that we would be defined with a radical contentment. That we as a people will be so wrapped up in how Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, that God would be at the center, that all other things would be pushed to the periphery, that God would be our central source of joy, that his will, his character, would define how we act, how we live. That we would believe in the all-sufficient grace of God and be in that dependent position, receiving all that he has for us, knowing full well that he has, he has us right where he needs us at this time. Let's believe that God chooses to give and also chooses to withhold. And in this, in receiving the sufficiency of God through his grace to you in an abounding way, let's be content. Let's be a content people of God for the glory of God. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we confess before you that our hearts are not yet there. We confess before you that our hearts are so far from being content in you alone that our hearts wander and want to find satisfaction in other things so easily. But help us to come back to the scriptures and help us to know that the scriptures are ultimate reality. That these scriptures say that nothing else can bring us joy and happiness like Christ and his gospel and the salvation that he alone offers. I pray, God, that you would make us a content people of God, that this radical contentment in, in such a discontent world would be a witness, would be such a light 
unto the nations, that people would see that in Christ alone there is quenching of thirst, that we will thirst no more when we drink from the living waters. Help us to believe that truth as God's people this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.